From a distance, some people's lives look easy. And I know that like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok don't help with that. Because sometimes when the algorithm feeds your feed, you see beautiful people, you see perfect vacations, perfect homes, perfect lives. And you wonder like, do these people have morning breath or not? Do, do these people have living rooms that have clothes strewn everywhere and dirty dishes that stack up? It's really easy to look online and see perfect people and perfect families and perfect lives and success and promotion and celebration and achievement. While other people's lives just seem hard. And maybe you're like, yeah, mine. But some people's lives always seem hard. Life always seems hard. There's always a problem or there's always a challenge or there's always a crisis at hand. One crisis after the next. Maybe you can relate to struggle. You ever been on the struggle bus? (laughs) I want to get off the struggle bus. So way back now, I know this is way, way back, but way back in early 2023, we started a series in the scripture called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we were in the book of Genesis and we started looking at this man named Abram. God changes his name to Abraham, his wife Sarai or Sarah, their son Isaac, the promised one. So now we are going back, we're kind of doing this, we've been doing this sermon series in installments. We are in the final installment of this series in Genesis, the God of Abraham, Isaac. And now we look at Isaac as he now moves toward his son, Jacob, and there are many sons. In Exodus chapter 3, when God meets Moses at the burning bush, it's really interesting what he says. Exodus chapter 3, God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Like, that's how he introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of your fathers. And then Jesus, in Matthew 22, verse 32, in a conversation with the Sadducees, he repeats the same thing. And he quotes from the Old Testament, and he repeats this refrain, that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which, when you think about it, is a really odd way for God to identify himself. With all the names of God, the identities of God, the titles of God, that God would say, hey, I want you to know who I am. I'm I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That self-identification is interesting. It's actually more loaded than you may think. You see, in that act of self-identification, God is declaring many things, but among the many things, he's declaring that he's not just the God of superstars and superheroes. That he's not just the God of the pretty people and the put together. That he's not the God of the perfect and the pious. He wants us to know that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you read their story, you begin to realize that he's the God of those who struggle. Of those who choose the way of faith, but the way of faith is not the way of perfection. The way of faith is the way of trusting in the one who is perfect. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of those who want to walk in faith and yet struggle to figure it out, like us. 
Anyone have a rough week? Yeah. Anyone have a rough day? Anyone have a rough year? A couple strung together. Let me reintroduce you again as we move into the last part of the series to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's been doing this thing for a long time, calling broken, sinful, limited human beings to follow him in his ways. And we get to join in this legacy and discover what he may be saying to us, to you. So let's go ahead and dive in. Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. I know it's been a few months since we've been in Genesis, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll kind of rehash this thing and get going again. Genesis 25, verse 19. It says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So uh, diving back into this series can maybe be a little bit disorienting and confusing, maybe a bit dangerous because it presumes that we all remember where we've been or it presumes that we know the book of Genesis real well or the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we may not. So this story picks up Genesis 25, verse 19. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac. Now you're like, well, that's just a good way to keep the story going. Some people say once upon a time. Others say it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. They're just going to say, hey, these are the generations. Um, But that's not random. That's not just a storytelling tool. In fact, some scholars would say that this phrase of these are the generations, it's one of the literary structures for the book of Genesis. And again, I won't bore you in all the details and we won't rabbit trail too far, but we can go ahead and put this next slide up. If you look at the book of Genesis, there are 10 times in the book where this phrase shows up. These are the generations of, and it names a person, and then it names their children, it names the sons that they have. So uh, it's called the Toledoths, that's the Hebrew word for generations. These are the generations of heavens and the earth and Adam and Noah and on down the like. What's interesting as you read the Toledoths, as they have these phrases throughout the book of Genesis, every time they're given, again, it says the generations, the, the name of a person, of a father, and then it goes and names their children afterwards, except for one of them, and that's this one that we come to here in Genesis 25, verse 19. Rather than naming, these are the generations of Isaac, and then naming Isaac's sons, it goes backwards, right? It says these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, and then it goes back to Abraham, and Abraham fathered Isaac, and then Isaac, it goes from there. This is the only one of these that goes in reverse before it goes forward and tells of the sons. You're like, yeah, who cares? It's as though the author, though, is giving us a clue as we read this generational line. It's as if he's giving us a wink and a nod to say, hey, if you want to understand Isaac and his family line, you really have to pay attention back again to where he came from. You have to pay attention to his father and his story. Because that is really true, especially with Isaac. 
Some have said that Isaac's relationship with his father is the contextual frame by which we understand what is to transpire with Jacob and Esau to come with his sons. In other, words, to un- in other words, to understand Isaac and Jacob and Esau, you have to understand Abraham and how this went down with his father. So today I want to highlight four struggles in the life of, a- of Isaac. And if you pay attention to Isaac's struggles, maybe we have a word for us too. First struggle Isaac, as we come to understand him and his children, he has a struggle with his family. And when I say family, I mean family of origin. And when I say family of origin, I'm specifically referring to his father, Isaac and, Ab- Isaac and Abraham. Have you ever heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people? Hurt people tend to hurt people. And I'll be honest, when I spend a lot of time in the life of Isaac, and I haven't done a whole lot of thinking about Isaac as a person, but he's an interesting character. Again, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham gets chapters and chapters and chapters. Jacob and his sons get chapters and chapters and chapters. And Isaac shows up a few pivotal places, but his part in the story is a lot smaller and a lot different. Even though Isaac was the child of promise, Isaac really had an interesting kind of life. Genesis 22 is probably the the pivotal scene in Isaac's life. Genesis 22, it's the sermon that Rand preached several months ago now. Genesis 22 on Mount Moriah. Genesis 22, when Isaac goes with his father up the mountain and Abraham binds his son Isaac and ties him up and lays him on the altar and raises the knife into the air to kill his son because God instructed him to. And then God stops him. Isaac gets off the altar. There's a ram caught in the thicket and there's a sacrifice that's made. It's interesting. Again, I I think there's beauty in that scene. And there's something going on in Abraham's faith and trusting God with that which is very near and dear to him. And we celebrate the God who substitutes the sacrifice in Isaac's place. But have you ever thought about what that was like for Isaac? (laughs) What was that like for Isaac? To be bound to be laid on the altar to watch his father raise the knife in the air. In Genesis 23, right after that scene, Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies. And she gets buried. And Isaac isn't mentioned. And then Genesis 24, which is, I think, the last sermon I preached before we paused the series for our last series, It's when Abraham initiates the search for Isaac's wife. It's interesting when you read that whole scene and Abraham, he he makes his servant bind an oath by reaching down by his thigh, that whole awkward scene. And then uh, Abraham's servant goes back to his family to find a wife. That whole thing with Isaac's wife search, Isaac isn't mentioned until the very end when the wife comes. It's like he's MIA, he's missing in action. Like, where is Isaac in this story? We don't see him again until Genesis 24, 63, 
when it says that he's coming from his comings in Be'er Lahai Roy. It's a phrase that makes it sound like he's been wandering. And that location, Be'er Lahai Roy, is the same place of banishment where Hagar and Ishmael were sent off in banishment to. So when Isaac reappears in the storyline to get his wife, it's as though he's been wandering around in this place of banishment. Like, what's happening in Isaac's life? It's really interesting. There seems to be a, a disconnect going on with his father, and maybe it has to go back to the whole on the altar incident, and there's an absence with him and around his mom dying, and then he's seen wandering in the place of banishment. Again, he's the child of promise, and he's wandering in banishment. And then there's one more piece in Genesis 25, and that's before Abraham dies, Abraham doesn't bless him. God comes and intervenes and blesses him in verse 11 after Abraham's death, but he doesn't get his blessing from his father. So if you look back at Isaac's story, there's this, there's this kind of, again, there's not a whole lot there, but you're like, there's these disconnects and there's places where he's missing and he's seen wandering and he doesn't have a blessing from his father. And so there's this struggle going on with Isaac and his relationship with his parents and his family. And you have to wonder in, as he's born into this family with massive promises from God and massive faith and these big things where God is moving and working for his parents, I bet Isaac is having trouble figuring out how do I fit into all of this? There's a struggle going on in his family. His father has a promise. He seems to be smothered by everybody else's story with God. But he's missing from the mountain. He's distant with his mother, distant with his father, and never receives a blessing. And his name is Laughter. But he hasn't come to find his place in the story. Mom, dad, promises, legacy, the weight of it all. So that's the first struggle in Isaac's life as you look backwards to Abraham and Sarah and the mountain and all of that. The next one is then this struggle for a wife. So Genesis 25 verse 20 tells us that Isaac is 40 years old when he gets married. He's 40 when he gets married. Which by our standards is late. By ancient standards... It's massive. If you're 40 and not married in this culture, what's the conclusion? Something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with your life. In our culture, they make movies about the 40-year-old virgin. In this culture, something has completely gone haywire in your life and plan when you're 40 and you're not married. So, he's 40. He has this very purposed, God-inspired search. Abraham's servant goes back to the homeland to find a wife and discovers Rebekah. But he's having to wait to have a wife. Now again, you could have just an isolated individual like wrestling of like, I should be married, and I'm not married, and I'm 40. But like, like by itself, it's a thing. Put that wrestling in the context of this is your family story. 
My father received a promise from God that through our family line, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. For you to participate in the legacy of your father and to have children that will bless the nations more more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Isaac's like, I just want a wife. How am I going to have this thing happen through me? Words spoken, legacy, promises, big picture, destiny. And he's like, I'm 40 and I don't have a wife. Can't find a date. What does that do inside of you when you don't fit? But wait, there's more. Third struggle. So he's, he's wrestling with his family of origin. He's wrestling for a struggle for a, to find a wife. He has to wait till he's 40. And then now, okay, there's this huge story, which we read and preached through the story of, of, of Abraham's servant finding Rebecca and finding a wife. And she goes and she leaves her family to come to have a marriage with Isaac. But now there's a struggle for a child. Right? Finally, Isaac is married. After all these years, he finds a woman from his, his father's house. Rebecca, and again, the author here in Genesis 25 gives us the long version of it. The daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. He wants you to know she's not just any woman. She's the right woman from the right family to fulfill what God was doing in their line. They are both from good stock, and now they're married. Finally, there's a a marriage, and kids should just follow quickly, right? Isn't that how the story goes, right? You get married, you fall in love, and you have kids. After 40 years of family turmoil and struggled to find a wife, now he has a woman, but she's struggling with fertility. She can't have children, which is another family storyline that's happened in the past. We're told that Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is barren. You're like, can a guy catch a break? More struggle. Struggle, struggle, struggle. When, when, when Rebecca leaves her family to come and be joined to Isaac, go to the next slide, her family blesses her. This is the chapter before, Genesis 24, 60. It says, and they blessed Rebecca, and they said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. The family blesses, may you just have an onslaught of children. And she's barren. She's like, I'd take one. Forget thousands of ten thousands. I'd take one. When you do the math between verse 20, Isaac's wedding at age 40, and the birth of his children, which do eventually come, spoiler alert, in verse 26, it says that Isaac was 60 when his kids were born. He gets married at 40. Waiting, waiting, waiting for a wife. Married at 40. Let's have kids to fulfill the promises of God in our family. Waiting, 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 waiting 20 more years. Like, that's the stuff that it happens in a few verses, and we're like, bada bing, bada boom, they get married and they have kids. You're like, 20 more years that are in between the lines. 20 years waiting, trying, 
struggling, praying, crying, mourning, grieving, wrestling, questioning, trials, struggle. God, where are you? You see the struggle compounding. How many months, years of barrenness have to happen? God, where are you? Which leads then to the last struggle. Like, oh, I just want you to wife. Oh, I got a wife. I just need kids. I got kids. No, we got, I got kids. This is the struggle for a child, and now it's the struggle with children, because not all is well in mama's belly. Again, we're told that Isaac prayed to God for his wife, and she became pregnant. For those of you who have been pregnant in the room, do you remember the day that you first felt a child inside of you move? You're like, it's moving. He's moving. She's moving. Oftentimes you have someone, hey, come here, feel this. You put your hand on your belly and you feel the child moving inside of you. I remember with one of our children, my wife was very pregnant and she was in bed and she rolled over to come next to me and I was trying to fall asleep and I, I'm not sure which kid it was, but it was like doing gymnastics inside of her. Like her stomach was like... And after about 30 seconds of her like next to me, I'm like... Would you scoot over? That's annoying. I'm sorry, it was not, it was not my best husband moment. And she just looked at me, like she gave me that look of like, welcome to my pregnancy, right? I, I can't get away from this, you can. The movement in the womb. And that movement was nothing compared to what's going on inside of this family and this story in this particular person. Go to the next slide. Genesis 25, 22, it says the children struggled together within her. And so Rebecca, she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your room, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So inside the womb of Rebecca is World War III. Two babies, twins, moving, wrestling, The Hebrew word here is the word ratzatz, which is a bit onomatopoetic of the struggle. It's Smash Brothers inside. Ratzatz. Two babies going at it in the womb. It's the same word in the scriptures used to describe the poor being oppressed, skulls being crushed, and reeds being broken. That's the word used to describe what's going on inside of her womb. And Rebecca's in pain. She's like, ow, it hurts. She's confused. What's happening inside of me? She finally, she cries out to God for help and she prays, why is this happening to me? And God responds and speaks. God gives her an answer. It says there's actually two babies in there, not one. And there are actually two nations in your womb. Two people groups that will be divided. And God tells her that reversal is on its way and that the younger is actually going to receive favor and power over the other. The younger won't serve, but be served. The firstborn won't rule. Serious struggle inside of her body. 
So finally, we'll get to the end of the story here. Finally, it's time for the babies to be born. Here's our introduction to these two inside of her womb. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. You gotta love the descriptive language here. Twins in the womb. The first one comes out hairy and red, like a hairy cloak, like a puppy. And so they call him Esau, whose name means red. And then the second child comes out completely the opposite. Not hairy, but almost hairless. And he is described in opposite terms, not just by his looks, though, but also by his actions. So these two brothers have been in the womb for months, struggling within their mother's womb, battling and smashing each other. Esau, hairy, red, comes out first. And then Jacob is born, we're told, with his hand on his brother's heel. And that's where he gets his name from, Jacob, which means heel grabber or supplanter or deceiver. He cheats. It's as though he's trying, from, from the day of birth, he's grabbing his brother, trying to get ahead. Come back here. I want to be first. Pulling on him. Pulling on his heel. How would you like to be named after the first thing you did out of the womb? I reckon we would have some messed up names. Frederick Beekner wrote a novel on the life of Jacob. It's called Son of Laughter. It's a fictional novel. He kind of creatively fills in the biblical account. But as he talks about Jacob and Esau, he plays on their names. And so he calls them Heels and Harry. Heels and Harry. I kind of like that. Jacob the heel grabber, the deceiver. Esau the hairy red one. Two boys, both sons of Isaac, both very, very different. In fact, I don't know if you could have a pair of brothers more different. And in the weeks to come, we'll kind of hear more about their lives and story. But what happens in the family is maybe not so unique. But Harry, red, Esau becomes a manly man, a hunter. He and his father have a connection. Jacob the heel grabber connects with his mom and they have a thing going between them. She likes to talk to him and give him plans that he executes. And this family already, the division between the two begins to get played out at a very young age in their family. It becomes divisive and toxic. And the family story of struggle continues into the next generation. In some ways, these similar themes of struggle play out again and again and again. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves, I just want to note, because we're going to actually talk about Jacob a lot, because Isaac doesn't show up a ton more in the story. He shows up, but not a lot. Jacob is more, becomes the main figure here. 
But even notice now our introduction to Jacob, the son, our first impressions. First thing we watch right out of the womb is grabbing the heel of his brother. This is the beginning of Jacob's story. He's born in struggle, a struggle that predates his birth. He's named by his first failure of grabbing at his brother's heel. And he, he spends the rest of his life grasping for a sense of identity because he doesn't really know who he is. He's always striving, grabbing for something else. Can anybody else relate? Maybe you were born in struggle. If you look at your family and your family background, maybe generationally, family struggle, marital struggle, fertility struggle, sibling struggle. Maybe you have a sense where you have been named in your failure, the haunting memory of your past that seems to be the rudder of your destiny. Do you feel like the past has more sway over you than it deserves? And then out of that place, do you find yourself always just grasping for more, whether it's more money or greater acceptance or to get ahead of your darn siblings, to please a parent, to leave a legacy, to get a better job, to gain security, to feel better about yourself? Here's why human beings grasp is because we aren't settled on who we are. And we think that we are our struggles or we think that we are our failures or we think that we can become shaped by what we grasp after. One author notes this. Whatever pain is not transformed is transferred. Meaning if our pain doesn't get dealt with, if we don't allow God into his work of healing and transformation, into the deepest parts of our pain and our story, we end up passing it on to the next generation. And we see that true in Abraham's life and Isaac's life and Jacob's life. Whatever pain is not transformed is transferred. You're like, what's the hope of this story, Paul? This is pretty depressing. Is the, is the point of today just to identify that we all struggle, that we all fail, that we're all grabbers? Is it just commiseration? No, the point of this is not just commiseration. Here's what this story reminds us, and we're going to get more into this in the weeks to come. There's good news in the story, and there's an invitation to the story. So here's the good news first. The good news is this, that the truest thing about you is not what is produced in you or by you for good or for bad. The truest thing about you is not what is produced by you for good or for bad. So I'll just give a little bit of my own story. Growing up, I was always a really good student. And I don't mean this to honk my own horn, but I had a 4.0 in junior high, a 4.0 in high school, a 4.0 in college, and a 4.0 in grad school. And you think I began to identify myself by my grades. You think? 
And I began to believe the lie that I was what my grades reflected me to be. That's a lot of pressure to put on someone. That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. That you are what you produce. That you are your successes. I also was an athlete growing up. I used to believe that my identity was my letterman's jacket, back when they still had letterman's jackets. And the championships that we won, the success that I had on the court, that I was what I produced for good. And some of us still believe that lie, that I am what I produce. I am a result of what my job is. I am what I produce financially. I am what I produce in a good family, or I am what I produce in whatever it is for good. We think that we are what we produce. You aren't who you, what you produce. That's not your identity. The most truest thing about you is not what you produce. Others feel the reverse side is I am what I produce for bad, so I fail. I'm a failure. I struggle with addiction. I'm an addict. And we tie identity. I'm a liar, I'm a failure, I'm a sinner, I'm an addict, and we try, tie our identity. The truest thing about me is what I produce for bad or for good. That's not the truest thing about you. If you want to know yourself, it begins by discovering the you that is known and seen by God. It begins with the realization of who you are in his face and in his eyes. God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign work, thank God, transcends our struggle for sin and failure through the work of Jesus. It's his word and what he speaks over us that begins to shape and define our identity. Are we listening? Maybe you can say it another way. You will not find peace in your life by simply rearranging the circumstances of your life, but by realizing who he says that you are. What did God say to Rebecca? She's like, why is this happening to me? As the babies are in her womb, why is this happening? God says, this is Genesis 25, 23, there are two nations, there are two people groups. The older shall serve the younger. Before these two even hit the ground, take a breath, do anything. God knows, God sees, and God speaks purpose into their life. And their lives are shaped by a God-given identity. And their ultimate problems don't disqualify them. Their struggle doesn't scare God off. Instead, God speaks into the mess and says, I have a plan for your life that is based on me and my work and my word over you. Who you are, my friends, is greater than your family of origin. Some of you have spent your whole lives fighting, wrestling, bucking against jockeying for favor with siblings and parents and the family of origin definition of your life is not the greatest thing about you. Who you are is greater than your marital status. 
again, may I speak a word to my single friends that marriage is not the completion of your life. A spouse does not solve all of your challenges. Neither do children. Your financial assets, your greatest moment of failure, anything that is built on someone or something other than God and his word and his work will crumble and fail. And our only hope is the plan and purposes of God spoken over you. Who are you? So that's the good news. <laughs> that the truest thing about you is not what is produced by you, for good or for bad. And the invitation, though, is this. <laughs> are you willing to pay attention to the particulars of your story and your struggle? Are you aware of the cycles of struggle that are at play? Are you aware of your toledoth? Because God is the God of generations. He's the God of you and your parents and your grandparents, and you all bring a lot to the table that he's inviting you to pay attention to. And as you see your certain cycle of struggle in your family, as you look back, grandparents, parents, siblings, self, the struggle in your story will actually be a clue to your pathway of healing. So many people experience the struggle, like, why is this happening? Not realizing this is the same stuff that happened in my parents' life. This is the same stuff that happened in my grandparents' life. And we're shocked when we see it again in the next generation. We're like, oh, oh yeah, this has been happening for a long time in our family stories, and it's showing up again. Are you paying attention that God may actually want to transform that particular part of your cycle of story, your struggle? that you may not just pass it on down the line to someone else. Some questions. Like, in your life, in, as you, like, think, think through, just think, picture in your mind your grandparents. You may not have known them. Maybe you did really well. I, can, I have all four of my grandparents. I can picture their faces. I know their names, and I know their stories. Picture your parents. Like what needs to be noticed? What needs to be healed? What needs to be renounced? Like, this isn't happening again. Jesus has come to set the captives free. Jesus has come to bring healing. Where is, like, no. In the name of Jesus, I want to seek healing in this place because I don't want to see this thing happen again. What needs to be renounced? Not just to paint all of a bad picture. What needs to be received? My guess is that there's some really particular things that are true in your family line. You're like, man, this is a gift. I want that too. Strengths, gifts to be received. Like as I pay attention to this part of my family, I see something to celebrate. What needs to be transformed? So we can be free from the struggle of who am I? I need to grasp, I'm defined by my failure, I need to somehow, 
No, God speaks better over you through the work of Jesus. Blessing over you through the work of Jesus. Identity over you in the name of Jesus. So receive the good news by faith of who you are. And then pay attention of like, but there's some stuff here that I gotta figure out and engage and talk about and pray through and seek wisdom from that, that, that I may not blindly or passively pass on or transfer the pain in my life or my parents' life on to the next generation. Because the good news of this Toledoth, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a family of promise that down through that line eventually comes Jesus. Out of the line of the heel grabber comes the anti-grabber, Jesus. From Jacob's line comes this one that Philippians 2 says that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he came in the form of a servant in the likeness of men. And he died a death on the cross to bring redemption to all those who would believe in his name. And because Jesus knew himself as one who was known by his Father, he willingly let go of all that he could have held on to, and he laid it aside in sacrifice for us to have a new identity and a place with him in glory. So some of you feel forever marked by your struggle or someone else's. Some of you feel forever marked by your failure or someone else's. Some of you feel that you are consumed with the never-ending pursuit of grabbing. The good news is someone has come. His name is Jesus, who didn't fail to rescue us from that continuing. Would you receive again the good news of identity in Jesus? And would you be willing to invite Jesus to redeem the cycle of struggles in your story? He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and the heel-grabbing Jacob. He's not the God of the pious and the perfect. He invites you to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the ability to see others on the page and to see in it our own lives, too, and to see your heart, your plan, your pursuit, your transformation as you have been faithful to the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Jacobs and the Sarais and the Rebekahs. May you be faithful to us and in our pursuit of grabbing and our feeling crushed by the weight of our sin and failure or our delusion to think that somehow the stuff that we do defines us ultimately God I pray for eyes to see what is true and ears to hear your voice to know again your love and grace And would you do a work, God, in our time, in our day, in our generation, a work of healing and redemption of our stories that would lead to the next generation walking and living with you differently because of the work you're doing here and now today. 
So God, I pray for all those with father wounds. God, I pray for all those with mother wounds. God, I pray for all those who have struggled with infertility. I pray, Lord, for those who have been uh, lacking peace around their marital status. God, I pray for those who are unemployed right now. God, I pray for those who are struggling around where they're going to live. God, all these questions and struggles and challenges, God, I pray, Lord, your work and your grace and your intervention for your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.